From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. After this experience, I understood that I was already accepted, just as I was, without doing anything. And so then, from that vantage point, to go into what was real was possible. And it was healing to understand that I could do that work not to become acceptable, but from a place where I knew I already was. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Katie Langston. She describes herself as a doubter by nature and a believer by grace. She's the Director of Digital Strategy for Luther Seminary's Innovation Team, and she oversees digital projects aimed at cultivating vibrant Christian spirituality in a postmodern, post-Christian cultural context. She writes and speaks to Christian audiences about Mormonism and to Mormon audiences about Christianity, and she's a popular blogger, podcast guest, and preacher. She's a pastoral intern preparing for ordination in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and she lives in the greater Twin Cities area with her husband, two daughters, and her dog Buffy, who is of course named after Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. Katie Langston, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David, and thank you for having me. I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You're in your early 20s, and you're in Bulgaria in a worship service, and a sex worker stumbles Mm. in from off the street, drunk and sobbing. And you have a conversation with this sex worker that was unexpected. Tell our listeners why you were there and what was happening there in that moment with this woman who stumbled in off the street. Yeah. So I was in Bulgaria at the time serving a full-time Mormon mission. So we did a lot of door knocking and talking to people about Mormonism. And in this particular instance, this woman whom we'd had some conversations with as we passed her by. She she often sat on the street near where the church building was, where the Mormon kind of meeting house was in, in Sofia, the capital city of Bulgaria. And she came in to church one day and she was just sobbing. And we sat with her for a few minutes toward the back of the sanctuary. And it was such a different kind of encounter than I had ever had before, even as a fairly sheltered Mormon girl who grew up in Utah. But there was a moment of grace in that experience where I I looked at this woman and I knew immediately and instantly that she was loved deeply by God. I tried to convey that to her. I'm not sure that that it got through or anything like that, but it impacted me because I felt in that moment just super clearly that she was a beloved child of God. Well, let's take a step back just to make sure that my listeners 
are following. When you say that you are on a Mormon mission, can you explain briefly what that means? Sure. So a lot of your listeners have probably seen the young men with white shirts and ties and name tags that knock on doors or ride around on bicycles or something like that. And those are full-time volunteer proselytizing missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known colloquially as the Mormon Church. And so when you're in your early 20s, late teens, early 20s, both men and women, boys and girls can go. Mostly boys go. Uh, so a lot of people say, boy, I've never seen like women missionaries out there, but women can also go. And I did. Well, and you were there in the mission field. You were in this moment ministering and telling this woman who was in despair that she was loved. But there's some irony in that moment, because as we read in your book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace, you were not feeling particularly solid in the love and security of God and your faith at that moment either. Now, that's my characterization. I don't want to overstate it or state it wrongly. So if you have a different way of talking about it, I would love to hear it, but it's, it seems like even in that moment that you were consoling this woman in the fact that God loved her, you weren't so certain, it seems to me, that God loved you. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think that's a really fair characterization. And the irony of that has struck me as well, that somehow I could see it in others, but I was incapable of seeing it in myself or for myself. Well, and, and that begins to get us into your story. So you were raised in Utah by a Mormon family, and you were part of a Mormon community. There was a period where you were pulled out of public school because the fear was that what you were learning there was too secular. And so mm -hmm. there was every attempt made, I think this is a fair characterization, by your family and by the community around you to communicate a certain type of faith to you. And Tell us a little bit about that process. How was faith communicated to you when you were a child? First of all, faith was the center of our lives, I would say, growing up um, Mormon in, in Utah, and especially in a really devout family like I did. It was absolutely the most important thing in our entire world, in our family's life, and then also in the life of the community that was really enforced by the folks around us. And the idea was that we were to take our faith extremely seriously, which we did. And there were tremendous gifts that came along with that, a sense of purpose, a sense of community. And at the same time, the way in which the faith was communicated to me was one, I describe it as that of bracing contingency. <laughs> By which I mean the expectations of the church meant that in order for us to reach our full potential, in order for us to be, this is something that Mormons talk about, you know, being together with their families forever into eternity, in order for that to happen, we had to fulfill the laws and requirements of the faith. And if we didn't, if we were found unworthy at the end of our lives, we would be separated from our families for eternity. So on the one hand, there was this strong sense of family, this strong sense of community, and this emphasis on making faith the center of our lives. And on the other hand, there was this terror that if you did the wrong thing, you would lose all of that, everything that you had been taught to sort of put at the center of your life and world. And so I really struggled in the tension between those two expectations. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Katie Langston. She's the Director of Digital Strategy for Luther Seminary's Innovation Team, and we're talking about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. You spoke a moment ago about the contingency that was there in the structure of the Mormon faith that you were taught. You had to constantly be searching your actions to see if you had sinned, and you had to confess those sins and to be truly repentant. You were constantly wondering if you were good enough. And as you describe in the book, Sealed, you are constantly at battle, not only with your thoughts, but with your body. And this manifests itself eventually in a kind of repetitive kind of almost a mantra, asking for God's forgiveness constantly under your breath, and other things that eventually you characterize as obsessive compulsions. I don't want to go past this too quickly, and I wonder if there's a thing or two you can say about that experience of having religious faith turn into compulsive behavior that might be valuable for my listeners to hear. Yeah. Well, eventually, when I was older and when I was an adult, I was actually diagnosed with clinical obsessive compulsive disorder, and the content of the obsessions and compulsions were religious in nature, which isn't uncommon, especially in higher demand faith traditions. It's not uncommon for people to to develop OCD and to have the content of the obsessions and compulsions be related to faith. But what it did was turn something that I think is meant to be a balm to people's souls into mental and emotional torture. I spent just hours a day in deep despair and anxiety, terrified that I had done something wrong and perhaps hadn't remembered it, struggling with intrusive thoughts that felt completely unacceptable to me. And the prayer that I prayed please forgive me of all my sins. That was a a common prayer that I prayed in an attempt to seek some sort of reassurance or some sort of relief from the anxiety only ended up heightening that and detaching the spirituality of prayer and the spirituality uh, of faith and detaching me from what could have been and should have been uh, reaching out to God. Instead, it was the symptom of, of a disorder of sorts. And that was really painful and difficult to reconcile. I myself come from a Roman Catholic background, and the word that we have for what you're describing, it's sometimes called scrupulosity, where you're scouring your behaviors for any hint of sin, sort of looking in all the corners for dust. But one of the ways that this manifested for you, and you talk about this in the book, is that you weren't simply confessing sins that you had done, but you were literally imagining that you had done things that you hadn't done. You were taking on the sins of your brother. You were taking on the blame for things even when you were not culpable for those things. Now, I want to make sure that I've got that right, because it seemed to me like this was an important part of this as well. It wasn't simply that you were constantly in terror over the things that you you had done, but you were also imagining things that you hadn't done. Now, when I say it that way, have I got it right, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's exactly right. Yes, that was certainly a part of it. Well, and with that, then, as you're taking on the sins of others, what I'm also hearing you saying is that the more that you did it, the less comfortable you became. It didn't actually accomplish what everyone around you told you that it was supposed to accomplish, that you would feel lighter and that you would feel clean. But it seems like those feelings only lasted for a brief period of time, and then you were plunged right back into the terror. Is, is that a fair way of saying it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's that's what happens because when you begin to lean into something that is not real, you begin to get lost in sort of a maze of unreality. And if you don't have a way to reality test to say, wait a minute, is this is this actually real or is it not? Then you've given more and more power to the sort of imaginations of your mind. And it can be really terrifying. You discuss, particularly in the first half of the book, your relationships with your family, with your mother and your father, your grandmother. And you also are talking about some of the people around you in your community and in in your worship community. And I wonder, because the communication that they are all giving you around this time is that the faith that they have is a comfort to them and that they're somehow doing it right. And your experience, as you relate in the book, is that your faith wasn't a comfort to you at the time and you constantly felt like you were doing it wrong. Now that you're looking back as an adult, not with the eyes of a child, but with the eyes of someone who has had more involved conversations and has maybe been allowed some confidences that you were not allowed when you were young, do you really feel like the people around you were comforted by their faith? Do you really feel like they were getting out of it what they told you they were getting out of it? Or do you feel like this was something that was more than just you? I think that for just about every Mormon I know, and, and I don't mean to, to overgeneralize, but I'm, I'm just speaking from my experience with Mormons that I know well, there is this unease that kind of sits at the bottom of the Mormon psyche. I don't doubt that my parents, my grandmother, my loved ones find a lot of purpose and indeed comfort and hope in their faith. But I also see this edge of fear because of the sort of contingent nature of Mormon belonging and the sense that one wrong move, right? That that one wrong move can separate us from the people that we love. And as I've grown and as I look back on it, I do see some of the edge of anxiety in a lot of my loved ones. Certainly not to the extent that I experienced it. I would never claim that. But I think there are times that a lot, if not most, of my Mormon loved ones struggle to rest, struggle to feel as if they're okay. They don't have that sort of existential kind of calm because the threat of separation is always just out there looming. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Katie Langston. She's Director of Digital Strategy for Luther Seminary's Innovation Team, where she oversees digital projects aimed at cultivating vibrant Christian spirituality in a postmodern, post-Christian cultural context. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. 
I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying the conversation that you're hearing today, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Katie Langston. She's a doubter by nature and a believer by grace. She's the director of digital strategy for Luther Seminary's innovation team, where she oversees digital projects aimed at cultivating vibrant Christian spirituality in a postmodern, post-Christian cultural context. We're speaking today about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. Before the break, we were talking about the face and the kind of heart of your experience of growing up in the Mormon faith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And before the break, you were saying that you didn't want to disparage the faith of those around you. But if I can paraphrase, even though you saw that for many of them it was a comfort, it was not a comfort for you. It seems to me like you were always striving to do an extra thing in order to prove to yourself that you believed what everyone around you told you that you should believe. And so you went not only into the Mormon missions, but you deferred going to college away from your hometown. You engaged in in various activities trying to show yourself, perhaps, that you really believe these sorts of things. Now, that's my characterization from reading your book. I, I wonder if you could tell my listeners how it felt for you to be doing all of these extra things, like going on a Mormon mission, like you talked about in the last segment, when that was not necessarily expected of you as a woman in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What was that like for you as you were doing these extra things? Yeah, I think that's actually really insightful kind of way of reading that I perhaps maybe hadn't even exactly articulated in that way myself. But yeah, I think there was this constant sense that I, I knew that I had doubts all along. And I was convinced that the doubts were because of my own unworthiness, my own lack of ability to obey the commandments perfectly. And I continually sought and strove to do all the things that we're supposed to do in order to receive a a witness from God. We were supposed to receive what they call a burning in the bosom, you know, (laughs) Wesley and heart strangely warmed kind of experience. We were supposed to have that. Uh, And I really struggled to, to feel that, which of course just continued my own sense of alienation and despair over my own unworthiness. And so I do think that a lot of going on the mission, for example, I, I think there was a, a real sense there that I was doing that to try to prove to myself that it was all true, that I could believe it all the way I was raised to believe. One of the relationships that becomes very prominent and this is understandable, particularly in the first half of the book, is your relationship with your mother. And she knows your failings and your struggles in an increasingly intimate way. She becomes aware that you are struggling from a very early age with your own kind of sense of control of your body. And I'm going to use control with some scare quotes here because the explorations and all were, I think, natural and ones that we're told that many children go through. So with all of that, she keeps saying to you this kind of repeated phrase that God sees that you are trying, Katie, and that's good enough. And 
I think that she was genuinely trying to give you comfort, but it almost seems like that worked somehow in an opposite kind of way. And I don't want to overcharacterize the relationship with your mother and how it factors into some of the other things that we've been talking about. But I wonder if you could say a little bit about that relationship of being told by someone who you describe at one point in the book, she doesn't quite believe the love that she's told that she has from others. And she's now turning around and telling you that you are loved in a way. It's almost like she didn't believe what she was trying to pass on to you. I thought that was such an insightful moment in your book. And I wonder about the dynamic there where you're observing day in and day out your mother not being able to really absorb the love that others are giving to her. And then she turns around and says, but God sees that you're trying and you're loved and you don't quite believe it. Now, am I connecting that correctly or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's a really, again, insightful way of reading that. It reminds me of what we were talking about earlier when the sex worker came into church and I was able to tell her that she was loved, even though I didn't believe it for myself. I think there is an element of that in my mom's own experience. She was a source of love and compassion and grace in my life, even though she was wrestling with her own demons for a really long time and had her own fears uh, of not being good enough, which I saw. I saw that in her. I think that comment that you made about how God sees that you're trying and that's all God wants, right? That was a constant framework of how we were meant to live our faith. There's a a passage in the Book of Mormon that says, uh, we're saved by grace after all we can do. The implication being that we have to do all we can first. We have to try and then God's grace will make up for what we lack. And the the problem, again, with, with that, with someone who, who perhaps has a bit of a scrupulous conscience, is that you never know that you've done all you can. And so the emphasis on the trying, you need to try, you need to try, becomes a bit of a torment because you think, golly, did I really try? Did I try as well as I could have tried? <laughs> and maybe that also gets back to some of what we were just talking about in terms of always feeling as if I needed to do that extra thing. Well, now I want to present to you what I would loosely call a tale of two public presentations. And I'm going to deal with the one and then I'll ask you about the next one. So the first one is you've gone on Mormon mission. You've now become married in the Mormon church and you are working to make all this fit together and you're doing the best that you can. And one night you travel with your husband to to go and see a seminar presented by a man named David Bednar, who's who you describe as a high ranking Mormon apostle. And he presents this sort of notion talking for an hour. And he's talking about all these sorts of things about how to be a good Mormon, how to be a good member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then the question and answer period comes and you ask him point blank, what is the space for messy humanity in all this? What happens if you find yourself outside the box? And David Bednar's response is simply to say, sister, just stay in the box. I wonder if you could take us back to that moment, what you were asking for in that moment and how it felt to receive that answer. I was hoping to hear from uh, a church leader, a person in authority that yeah, we all make mistakes. Yeah, we all need forgiveness. Yeah, nobody's perfect. And I really needed 
to hear that from him. So it was pretty shocking to instead get a response that was like, you know, just don't, just don't do bad things <laughs> in essence. And I remember being pretty distressed by that at the time. And also afterward, as I was reflecting on it, just thinking that just can't, that's just not tenable. That's untenable because we're human beings and who among us can stay perfectly inside the box. But I, I wonder, though, because when we look at the American public sphere, we do see oftentimes public policy that reduces in many ways to a message of just don't do bad things. If you just mm -hmm. comply, everything will go fine. Why is it not enough to say to someone from an audience or from a pulpit, just don't do bad things? Well, because first of all, everybody does, quote unquote, bad things, right? That's part of being human. And secondly, particularly in that sort of context, you're almost certainly speaking then to someone who has, who has strayed from the box. And especially in a Mormon context, to be you know, perfectly blunt, that a lot of that has to do with sexuality. It has to do with sexual control, both in terms of LGBTQ conversations. And then also there's just a tremendous amount of shame about, say, pornography usage or masturbation or those sorts of things in Mormon, in a Mormon context. And every person, you know, most people have sexual experiences that would probably be outside of the recommended box, as it were. And, and, to, and to not acknowledge that in a room full of human beings seemed and continues to seem to me to be pretty hopeless, that there's not much good news in that. There's not much of a message of hope or help in that sort of a response. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Katie Langston. She's Director of Digital Strategy for Luther Seminary's Innovation Team. And today we're speaking about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. Well, we were talking about one presentation that you went to see that didn't quite hit the mark for you and, in fact, left you feeling emptier after you asked your question than when you went into it. But now I want to turn to another public presentation that you went to go and see, a man by the name of Jerry Root, who you describe as a scholar of C.S. Lewis, who went and gave a lecture at Utah State near your home when you were living there in Logan, Utah. And you found this presentation to be revelatory for a number of reasons. You found it refreshing and you found new hope, almost, I would say, in this presentation by Jerry Root. Can you tell me and my listeners, what it was about his presentation that had that effect on you? I think the most kind of compelling part of his presentation to me, he was talking in general about Christianity and C.S. Lewis and picking up on a lot of Lewis's ideas about longing and joy. And he was, within that context, he told a story uh, about how a woman at a probably an academic event asked him how a man as smart as he could be a Christian. And he replied, I'm a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. I don't think I could live if it weren't for the love and grace of God. And that coupled with my own experience of longing to be whole my own experience of longing to feel accepted and to feel divine love struck me so deeply because I had learned to channel that longing 
into working really hard and worrying a lot. And he shifted the paradigm. He said, that sort of longing that we have for wholeness, we can understand that we feel that because there is, in some ways, aspects of human deficiency within us, and that you can't really conjure up, because Lord knows I tried personally, you can't really conjure up that feeling uh, of wholeness as much as you can receive it. And I was so aware of my deficiencies, both exaggerated and, and real. And to hear someone just say, yeah, I have deficiencies, but I am whole because of the love of God was a complete paradigm shifter for me. And it changed the way I thought about myself uh, and about God and about the world. Well, and I, that's what I wanted to ask next, because it didn't simply change your relationship to God, but it sounds like it planted a seed that began to change your relationship to yourself. Is that too mm -hmm. much of a statement or is that on target? I think that's on target. You know, I think sometimes the, the way that I like to talk about it is like this, you know, I, I had a, a serious disorder of obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and sometimes I think there can be this kind of idea out there that, well, if you're, if you just pray more, if you just believe more or believe better, you're, you're going to be okay. And, and so I like that you emphasized that it began uh, a change of the way that I related to myself because what I think is that it opened up, having that experience of grace and of acceptance opened up room in my life to then be able to do things like go to therapy and begin to process some of the less helpful ways of seeing the world and seeing myself. So that experience opened up space for that, but it's not like it in and of itself was the beginning and end of the transformation, if that makes sense. It does. And this is actually fascinating to me because you, you say at one point, and it's a line that stuck out to me, healing is a journey, you say in your book, Sealed. And it's not a light switch flip. You don't just turn it on and suddenly I'm healed. But what strikes me about what you just said is that you had been asked by everyone around you for most of your life to confess your innermost thoughts and failings. And it hadn't been healing for you. It hadn't been therapeutic because you were constantly feeling judged by this. It wasn't a cleansing moment. It was a moment of terror for you. And you internalized that moment of terror. But then you said you began to open up in a different way where something like going to therapy, where once again, you're confessing your innermost intimate details that became healing for you. And so I wonder if you could characterize what the difference was between everyone around you asking you constantly, to be looking to your interior self and it not working, and then a relationship where one or two ask you to look at your interior intimate self and it begins to work and it begins to heal. What's different in those relationships? The difference is before it was within a framework of contingency, that this had to be done in order for me to be acceptable. Whereas after this experience, I understood that I was already accepted just as I was without doing anything. And so then from that vantage point to go into what was real was possible. And it was healing to understand that I could do that work, not to become acceptable, but from a place where I knew I already was. 
And so this was more about flourishing. I know I'm okay now, cosmically, existentially, I'm okay. And so I want to feel better within that okayness versus the constant striving to make myself okay. And and that difference, that distinction was revolutionary. This strikes me because there's a point in your book, Sealed, where you talk about a conversation with your father and you begin to articulate this notion of acceptedness and that maybe the people are fine as they are and loved as they are. The response that you get, and I'm going to paraphrase here, is that's a bunch of liberal crap. That's wishy-washy, anything goes, everybody's loved, and that's not doing the right thing. It's not doing the right thing. The emphasis is so strong there as I read it on the page. And I wonder years now from that conversation how you have reconciled with yourself that kind of commanding voice of your father shouting almost one direction, that you can't say that everyone is accepted and loved as they are, and this assurance that you now feel. I I imagine that it's, it's both a comfort to feel what you feel, but there's also maybe a sense of loss because what your father articulated is and was important to you as well. Yeah, there's definitely grief that comes with looking back and recognizing both the ways in which I was taught to to hold suspect the idea that a person could be unconditionally loved. And then also just to see, also just to ask myself, what could have been in all kinds of relationships, even with my parents, if an unconditional sort of framework had been in place. And that's not to say that my parents didn't love me uh, well, and I think they loved me unconditionally and do love me unconditionally. But that's almost in a certain sense, despite the framework that, that they have accepted. And I think that part of healing is also to accept that. It's also to accept that even though they or others, I think, are wrong about that, they're wrong about the uh, idea that you have to earn or work for being accepted, that I can, and God does, accept them as they are, even in their wrongness about this particular point. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Katie Langston. She's Director of Digital Strategy for Luther Seminary's Innovation Team, where she oversees digital projects aimed at cultivating vibrant Christian spirituality in a postmodern, post-Christian cultural context. We're speaking today about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Katie Langston. She's the Director of Digital Strategies for Luther Seminary's Innovation Team, where she oversees digital projects aimed at cultivating vibrant Christian spirituality in a postmodern, post-Christian cultural context. We're speaking today about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. There's a word that you keep using all through our conversation. You keep using this word contingent, that Mm. your experience of faith was contingent and that the kind of structure of theology in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and let's be honest, in many other Christian faiths as well, is very contingent. It's a notion of you need to do something and then God will love you. And so this is not Mm. just confined to Mormonism. But I'm also aware that you are now navigating a new faith context. You're part of a Lutheran tradition now where you are studying and learning and participating in Luther Seminary, which is part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And I was struck as you've been using this word contingent because there's a Latin phrase that Luther used to describe the way that Lutherans think about this kind of question of contingency. The old Latin phrase is simul justus et peccator, that we are simultaneously justified and sinners, that at every juncture, at every moment, we're not presenting ourselves as all pure and clean or all soiled and bad, but rather we're always a mix of both. And I'm wondering if you could reflect with me on how that kind of theology, that notion that you're always coming with your best and your worst wrapped up together, is different and maybe liberating and maybe has been a sign of hope for you? I don't want to overstate it. I'd love for you to say it in your own words, but I'm wondering how you experience that theology and why you're drawn towards it. Yeah, I I love that simultaneously sinners and saints idea that you find in Luther because that is precisely my experience of life, (laughs) that I recognize within me both good and bad at all times. And the ability to live in a sort of paradox, right, and to learn to accept the paradox and the messiness of what life is, is something that I have found to be extremely liberating and extremely helpful. What's interesting is when we talk about contingency, I think that the difference in, say, Lutheran theology You know, whereas in some of these other strains of Mormonism and other strains of Christianity that might emphasize human action more, the difference there is that what is contingent is up to God in a Lutheran construct versus what is up to the human. And and the human being, as, as a simultaneous sinner and saint, can never be fully relied on. But God, who is perfect love, can always be fully relied on. And so it lifts that need to prove oneself. It lifts that off your shoulders. And so I I found myself, I, I didn't know anything about Lutheranism before I enrolled at Luther Seminary, which is funny, but I, I was still nominally Mormon uh, when I came to Luther Seminary. I was disgruntled Mormon and I was seeking and I was searching, which was one of the reasons that I enrolled there uh, initially to get just a, a master's degree in theology. And as soon as I read a biography of Luther in my very first seminary class, I was like, holy smokes, like this guy 
I get this guy. He also had extreme, I think, scrupulosity and obsessions about not being acceptable before God. And also had this sort of profound awakening that, oh, I can't do this. Like, that's not my job. That's God's job. God does that. And and I immediately felt as if I had found a sort of spiritual language and a spiritual home that really resonated with my own experiences with God. I'm really struck by this. So when I have attended services at friends' churches who are Eastern Orthodox, there's a moment in the liturgy where the priest lifts up the sacrament and proclaims to the congregation, holy things are for the holy. And you describe at several points in your book, Sealed, going into the temple, the various temples that you've attended, where you are made to dress in all white clothes and and to change out of your daily clothes. And you're asked questions about your behavior before you can go in and you have to receive a document that allows you to enter the temple and all of that. But when I hear you talking about your experience of encountering Luther and encountering this notion that we're simultaneously sinners and saints, it almost sounds like you're proclaiming that messiness can be holy. Am I overstating it? Or do you see that there's something holy in the mess? I think there's absolutely something holy in the mess because God came into the mess. And that's the whole crux of the the notion, the Christian notion of the incarnation, that, that God entered into this world the way this world is with its violence, with its despair, in order to make us all holy. Absolutely. I want to ask this next question delicately, because in your biography description that I read at the top of the show, one of the things that it says is that you lecture about Christianity to Mormons and you lecture about Mormonism to Christians. I think that some listeners may take offense or exception to that. I think that there are some listeners from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who would say Mormons are Christians. And I wonder how you navigate that kind of identity issue, because there are some within the Mormon church that would say Mormons are the only Christians. And certainly there are some Lutherans who would say that their brand of Lutheranism is the only proper Christianity. And so I'm wondering how you navigate those identification issues, how you navigate the exclusion that seems to be at the heart, not just of certain understandings of Mormonism, but certain understandings of other Christian denominations as well. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I tend to have a fairly broad sort of ecumenical orientation. So the idea that any particular expression of Christianity could claim to be the the whole corner on the church to me is absurd and and not faithful, I think, to the the witness of how the Holy Spirit is is moving and working in the world. The answer I usually give about the question, are Mormons Christian, is that it's complicated. So I I think absolutely, if you're looking at it from a sociological kind of history of religions, secular kind of academic perspective, Mormons are absolutely Christians because they emerge from the restorationist movement of the 19th century in the United States of America, which is a sort of distinctly 
Protestant-esque kind of movement. They talk about Jesus. And when they talk about Jesus, they're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Like they're certainly Christian in the kind of academic sense of the term, I would say. And I would say that many Mormons are absolutely Christians in the more spiritual sense of the term, where they believe in Jesus and their belief in Jesus has given way to lives of devotion and service and faith. And arguably, that's the most important sense in which a person can be a Christian, right? Theologically speaking, their notion of God, which is of an embodied sort of physical God, who God the Father is an actual kind of post-human, is the conception of him, and that there are many other gods in the cosmos. Theologically, that puts them far outside the bounds of what we might call orthodox with a little o, orthodox Christianity, which has a Trinitarian conception of God. And so in that sense, they're distinct from what might be considered the, the global church in that way. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Katie Langston. She's the Director of Digital Strategies for Luther Seminary, and we're talking today about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. So I come from a recovery tradition, and one of the things that we talk about in the tradition that I'm part of is that we honor, in some ways, the experiences that we survived. We honor some of the violence that was done to us because it taught us strengths and reserves that we didn't know that we had. And even though those strengths and reserves kept us alive during the time when we were suffering, there's also a kind of release and saying, we thank, we, we don't condemn those parts of ourselves, but we thank them for keeping us alive. But we also say, I don't need you anymore. It strikes me, and you know, that's my tradition, it's not yours, and, and so I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it strikes me in some ways that you're both honoring and releasing your connection to your Mormon past and your Mormon upbringing with this book. But I wonder if you'd reflect with me a little bit about what that process is like. What is it like not simply to transcend the things that you found constricting or damaging, but also to honor them along the way? You know, I'm reminded this the just a couple of weeks ago I preached on the the text in John where the doubting Thomas text as it were and then Jesus appears in the midst of the disciples and Thomas has said he won't believe but as soon as he touches the scars in Jesus hands and feet and the wound in his side he recognizes immediately who Jesus is uh, and says my lord and my god and I, I think there's something about that that resonates with my own experience. That is to say, in a kind of new life sense, right, that, that if my experiences have brought me to a place of new life, I still am who I was. And I still carry in my body, right, the scars uh, and the wounds of the past. And I think none of us can escape that. I think that's part of the healing process, that the, that the new life isn't completely divorced from what came before. It, it can't be. How on earth could that happen, but instead is born out of it? I think that's the beauty of the love of God and the grace of God, and also gives our stories particularity, makes us uh, who we are, allows us to be present with other people who are in pain, who are hurting, who are going through their own experiences that will leave scars in their bodies and in their lives. 
I think that's just part of it. I, I think we can't let go or pretend as if those things didn't happen uh, or if we weren't formed the way we were, because to do so, I think, would do violence to us. I don't think we have to kind of excise the past, but, but see if we can integrate it. Earlier in the conversation, we discussed the fact that you went on uh, a mission field experience with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You spent 15 months in Bulgaria as a missionary. You just a moment ago mentioned the fact that you were preaching about doubting Thomas from a pulpit. So it has sounded like you have felt some kind of call to ministry or evangelism at various points in your life. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us about what that looks like now. What's the shape of ministry for you in the near future as you're moving forward? Is it to the pulpit? Is it to some other kind of ministry? How do you see that taking shape? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of just letting it evolve and not trying to push anything too hard. But I do feel a call to what what Lutherans call word and sacrament. Lots of people call it word and sacrament, not just us. (laughs) But that is both a a, a preaching of the word and the good news of grace, and then also the sacraments, which for us are baptism and holy communion, as a way of shaping and framing the community and informing the community. You know, my work at Luther Seminary on the innovation team, we do a lot of digital projects that look at how might we articulate, better articulate the gospel, the, the, the grace of God, and the difference Jesus makes in everyday life in a culture that increasingly sees less and less need for God, that you can be good without God, right? And so what in particular do we have to share or to bring to the conversation about how we make meaning in the world and how we come together as community? I'm not sure exactly what the shape of that ministry will look like. I just know that that I'm really interested in the conversation. I'm really interested in connecting with people around these kinds of questions and topics and love to dive deep with folks all across the sort of religious or ideological landscape. And that I hope that somehow that will be wrapped up in in community that comes around the around the sacraments. It's clear that you have been on a really huge journey from where you started. You began in a small town in Utah with a certain type of Mormonism that was even on the fringes a little bit of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Your parents flirted a little bit with kind of what we might call fringe movements within Mormonism. There was some association with polygamists and with some others who had some thoughts that you talk about there in your book. But now you've come to a kind of resting place in the Lutheran faith. And I wonder, as you look at that sweep, do you feel like you're home? Do you feel like you're done? Do you feel like there may still be other steps on your journey? And what might that look like? Well, if there's one thing I've learned along this journey is to never assume that you've arrived at the place, at the final landing place. I do feel at home spiritually and theologically in a way that I never have before in my life. I feel as if the the Lutheran expression of of the gospel is one that just resonates really deeply with my experience of God. And so while I've learned to never say never, I do feel at home and feel as if this is certainly a place that I'd like to stay at least for the foreseeable future. It strikes me that there may be a listener or two who may be feeling their own kind of tension 
at this moment. They may be feeling that they have, that they've come to a breaking point, or they may feel like in this conversation, they've heard some things articulated that they've felt, but never quite had words for. And I wonder if you could think for a moment about those kinds of listeners and how you would encourage them. A lot of the folks that I talk to are people who are coming out of Mormonism and are feeling totally unmoored in their lives and are feeling as if they don't know if they could ever trust God again, if they even believe that there is such a thing, who certainly feel as if they could never participate in good faith in a community of faith of some kind, and yet who are deeply sensitive to the questions, the big questions in the world about purpose and meaning. A lot of times what I tell those folks, and I know everyone's in a different place, is just to just to rest for a time, just to let yourself be. Don't force anything. Don't assume that you have to jump into one thing or another, uh, but give yourself permission to sit, to breathe, and to just pay attention to what comes up. And when something comes up, try it out. And if it continues to come up again, try it out again. And trust yourself, trust God, if you dare use that word, that you're going to be okay. And, and just know that your belovedness is never, ever at stake. Well, Katie Langston, I'm so glad I got a chance to read your book, Sealed. It's ferocious in its honesty, and it's beautiful in its writing. And I was with you every step of the way as you built this, the sort of paving stones of this journey. I really am grateful that you were able to bring to readers the journey that you've had and the benefits that it has had for you are benefits for those that read your book as well. But thank you especially for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you. It's been such a joy to be with you today. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Katie Langston. She describes herself as a doubter by nature and a believer by grace. She's director of digital strategy for Luther Seminary's innovation team, where she oversees digital projects aimed at cultivating vibrant Christian spirituality in a postmodern, post-Christian cultural context. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.